So this morning our reading brings us to the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 and is meant, I think, to alert us to the resources of God and his kingdom in our lives. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is uh, written about in all four Gospels. I think, and again, this might suggest to us that there's something really crucial uh, about this story. And I want to suggest this morning as we get into it that I think the story of the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us to live in and from the resources of God and his kingdom. So I think the key here is that resources are available to us that are, that are suitable to our discipleship to Christ and our care for others, right? Did you catch that? That, I think, is the headline, that resources are available to us in both our discipleship uh, to Christ, and you might think of as our ambassadorship in the world, resources are available to us that are suitable to that place that we have in the world. Now, of course, the feeding of the 5,000, and you notice the last word in that passage was men. And so if you add women and children, scholars, I mean, no one knows, but scholars think it could have been double that or triple that. It, you know, it could have been you know, 10, 15, 20,000 people. No one knows, but a lot more than 5,000. And the only point in saying that is to say that it was unimaginable. I mean, again, just you know, think about this. Can you even picture 15,000 people sitting on the grass somewhere? I mean, maybe picture the amphitheater across the street there or something might be close, but right? Uh, so just picture how unimaginable it was. Yet what the disciples learn is that the power of Jesus was entirely sufficient. What they learn is that we're not deists and we're not merely, merely theists. You know, we don't, we don't hold in our imagination that there's this creator God that's really powerful who somehow created the heavens and the earth and then just sort of abandoned it to itself. Now, what we learn in this story is that the creator of the universe sustains and directs his creation on a continual basis. So if you think about it that way, how hard was it for he who said, let there be light to multiply some matter? Right, just some, some matter that happened to be in the form of bread, not in the form of wood. But the person who said, let there be light, or let there be a firmament, and let there be a division between the firmament, right? That, that, that creator God, what the disciples are learning, is the resource for their discipleship and for their ambassadorship of the world. That, it, that It's that personal relationship with Almighty God that's meant to sustain and direct them. So what I want to suggest to you this morning is that experiential knowing of that and interacting with it is really crucial to enthusiastic followership of Jesus. I just wanted you to note that little modifier, enthusiastic. Because there, there are ways of sort of gruntingly doing religion, right? There are ways of even sort of gruntingly doing Christianity or even sort of gruntingly be a disciple of Jesus. But where does like real enthusiasm come from? Well, I think it comes from this really rich interactive knowledge that's crucial for our journey inward of transformation, right? Just think of the, the, the enthusiasm it takes to sustain even desiring to shape your character. You know, think of the enthusiasm it would take to actually want to cultivate virtue in our lives or to pursue obedience. I mean, you gotta think it takes at least the obedience, I mean, the enthusiasm of a, Little leaguer, right? 
or you know, we, we just went to a dance recital for one of our nieces. You know, it's gotta take at least you know, the enthusiasm of a dancer. But I, I would bet that not a lot of us think of the word enthusiasm when we think of religion. You know, we might think duty, we might see the hardship, the world's problems are so big, you know. So whether it's our own inner journey of character and virtue and obedience or our outer journey, I think what we're meant to learn this morning is that we're meant to have the power to match our will to do good. So what is the good that you would like to do in the world as a follower of Jesus? Can you just call that to your mind? Well, what is the good that you'd like to do? Now, from where will you get the power to do that? And the enthusiasm to sustain it. And what we're meant to learn in this story from Jesus' act of compassion is you see him both doing his good in the world, expressing his compassion for these hungry people, but having the power to do so. All right, so if you look at your story now, the context, which we didn't read this morning, is that for calling out the king and Herodias, John the Baptist has just been killed at the hand of Herod. And so just a little aside here, but I I think it's worth this little aside as I was thinking about this story this week. I thought to myself, like seriously? Beheading is what happens to the greatest person ever born of a woman? Like, that's how it goes with your best friends? And I, I just thought to myself, kind of sobers my own expectations and begins to reorient my desires. And it kind of causes me to reconsider my demands on God and what I think he owes me for all I've done for him. I mean, just think about that for a second. Beheading is what happens to the greatest person ever born of a woman. Jesus said. So, which meant to say the greatest person of the whole Old Covenant story. So not one of the patriarchs, not one of the judges, not one of the prophets, John the Baptist. And what he gets for his trouble is beheaded for calling out Herod. So after the beheading, the apostles then rendezvoused with Jesus and reporting all that they had done and taught. I think it's kind of like those of you who work in business, kind of like maybe an ancient SF SWOT, you know, analysis, you know, SWOTs, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, uh, put an SF in front of it, successes and failures. You know, kind of like they get together and they do a little SWOT analysis, like what went right, what went well, what didn't, what didn't really happen. Or you might think of it as kind of the kind of thing that happens after people, you know, report coming back after a short-term missions trip or something. So then the story continues, you can see in your passage, that Jesus says to them, you know, hearing all that's happened, you know, come off by you, come away by yourselves, let's take a break and get a little rest. So what's happened is, if you were here last week, remember we we talked about the the sending of the 12, and their mission had really been fruitful, that Jesus' power had genuinely been extended through them, and now they needed some rest and privacy. But the the press and sort of clamoring of the crowds was real, yeah, remember I said to you a few weeks ago that, that John tells his, I'm sorry, that Mark tells his story sort of breathlessly. Uh, you know, uh, his characteristic verb throughout the whole gospel is immediately. 
And so this is meant to be sort of a, you're meant to hear sort of the breathlessness in this. That the press, look at your passage, that the press of the crowds were real. They were coming from all the cities. They were running and more and more were joining in. And so you're just meant to see this sort of breathless activity around them. And so the disciples were really busy and their lives were really full. But Jesus was teaching them in the midst of that to not be hurried. I mean, I, you know, I don't know all of your lives all that intimately, but I could just say for myself, if it helps you, that I certainly have a very rich and full life with all that I do, running three organizations and et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I get what it is to have a really full life, but I've also been learning that it's possible to have a full life without being in a hurry. Because hurry is sort of an anxious state of the soul. It's different than having a full calendar. And Jesus is trying to say to them, yes, you've had a very full life here, and, and I can see the kind of hurried anxiety that it's producing in you. Let's get away for a while. So this is Jesus trying to head off that anxious state, taking them to a quiet, pr private place, a place of kind of inner rest, you might say. Now, most first century Jews hearing this story would have immediately connected it to the Old Testament. And they would have seen the crowds as synonymous with cap Israel's various captivities. So you remember, for instance, in Ezekiel 34, it says, the Israelites were scattered over the whole earth because there was no shepherd, right? Jesus sees them as what? Sheep without a shepherd. And, and so this notion of a shepherd and how a shepherd um, both provides and gives rest is all throughout the Old Testament. Of course, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Or you might think of the book of Hebrews, the notion of rest or Sabbath rest is all through the book of Hebrews. Remember, there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Strive to enter that rest. And so when Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them, it, it literally means it was heartbreaking to him. It broke his heart because he too has the story of Israel in his mind and he knows that he's the true savior of these wandering sheep and that he's the true shepherd of Psalm 23. And so when he sees their hunger, the hunger's real. It's a very practical reality, as the text says. It's late, everybody's hungry, that's true. But for Jesus, uh, the hunger is just kind of a symptom. He sees that they're leaderless. In the good sense, they're kingless. That they're, in the idiom, sheep without a shepherd. They don't have a leader. They're living under the, the tyranny of Herod. That's what Jesus sees. He looks over this huge crowd and he sees people living under the tyranny of this partying beheader. And he realizes that they're living in kind of a wrong kingdom in that sense and that they're sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps Jesus was thinking of the passage in Numbers 27 that says, may the Lord appoint someone over this community who will lead them so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And this is why, if you've wondered, when he sees hungry people and has compassion on them, why did he teach them? Like, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Well, he taught them many things, the passage says, and the reason that makes sense is that their real need could only be met by revealing a reality beyond brute life under Herod. Right, yes, they were hungry, and as you know, they'll, they'll be fed. But Jesus could see that what's really going on is that they were just constantly suppressed under sort of the brute facts of life under Herod. And this is what he wants to free them from. And that requires some explaining. 
Now back to the story, the disciples see the other problem. They, they see that, that everybody is hungry, it's a desolate place, the hour's late. And so they, they just say the natural thing, you know, hey, you know, we're kind of responsible for this crowd. Let's make sure before it gets dark, we end this meeting and send them out to get something to eat. And then this is, of course, where Jesus startles them by saying, you give them something to eat. And now we're sort of back to where we began, that this is a completely unreasonable thing to ask. It's just absolutely unreasonable. It, would, it just would have made no sense to anybody. But, you know, as, as, as stories are wont to do, it's, it's that unreasonableness that's sort of the foil or the relief against which the miracle stands. That's what makes the miracle so, such a miracle and makes it stand out in such dramatic relief is that it was such an unreasonable thing to ask. I mean, in the idiom, idiom of today, I can just hear them saying, are you serious right now? And so let me get this straight. You want us to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread, go into these little villages. I mean, scholars do know this. There was no village around them that was probably bigger than one, two, or 3,000 people. And you're going to flood these little villages with 20,000 people? Or assume that they have enough bread to, to feed all these people? Not to mention that 200 denarii was about eight months' pay. That's what it would have cost these people to go do that, to, to bring back and give them something to eat. So, you know, people have wondered, you know, well, maybe this is the disciples being tired. You know, maybe they're a little irritated. Some people read the passage that way. Uh, others read it as, well, you know, they just maybe don't want responsibility for caring for the crowd. Or maybe they're just being practical. Maybe they just know it is late and food's far away in these small towns. And what can we do? But I think another way of reading this is that they actually are learning obedience, and they're thinking, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but all right, we'll go into town. And, or, you know, because they're thinking that's the only way we can handle this. So we'll do this. We'll, we'll just go into town, get the food, and bring it back. But before they can do that, Jesus stops them. You see your text. Well, how many loaves do you have? And they go and take an inventory and come back and say, well, we, you know, five and two fish. Now, this is where most people stop, and we should. This is where most people stop and see, see kind of a, a formational aspect in this passage. And it goes something like this. That after we either do a realistic inventory of the little we have, or for some of us, that inventorying process is a little bit neurotic, but whatever. Well, you know, if we can take a realistic one, or some of us, that's not so easy to do. But however we can take an inventory of what, quote, little we have, that the, 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 the story is at a minimum meant to say to us that the little we have, if offered in totality, that is enough for Jesus to take, break, bless, and distribute to the world. I mean, that is the key notion here. And I totally get that that is easier said than done. As I sat with this passage this week, I just have to keep it real and say, I think I've spent the vast majority of my life negatively comparing myself to others. I think it goes way back to being a little boy, playing baseball, wanting to be a major league baseball player. I don't think I've ever told you this kind of stuff because it didn't matter, but I mean, I've been on fields competing with or against people who are now in the Hall of Fame. And I just kind of always knew there was something different there. They had something that I didn't have. 
Like I just sort of knew in my guts, you know, it's one thing to be on the field with them, but that last little gap between actually playing in the major leagues, that tiny little gap is really about this big. And if you've ever been around it, you know. And so I think I've always like just compared myself negatively against, I could name famous religious leaders where I've I just always thought there's just something not really right about me. There's just something not really good enough. And that has been, even for, quote, even for someone like me, that has been a lifelong battle of coming to grips that the little I have, whatever that is, that if given in totality, that God will make something of it. So I just want to say to you, like, I get that's easier said than done, but I also want to say to you, it's worth wrestling down. It's worth coming to grips because otherwise it will be immobilized from taking the little we do have and putting it out there. So the story goes on. Jesus gets everyone settled on the grass. He, you know, he says this blessing. He breaks the loaves. He, and then he gives it to the disciples to give to the people. And sort of again, back to the beginning, they're now beginning to see the power of the creator at work. They're like, this is new creation as this bread multiplies. And well, actually, scholars don't know if it multiplied in their hands or Jesus's, but let's assume it was multiplying in theirs. They're actually seeing in their own hands new creation. You know, Jesus has been talking about the ruling and reigning of God in their presence. And they're now seeing it, that the, the kingdom of God is actually coming through their own hands. And that the creator is creating as he needs and as he wills. They're actually seeing here the perfect, uh, the perfect marriage of love and power. I mean, you could do way worse than just holding God in your mind when you have to as one who is completely competent love. He isn't just competent to do whatever is right. His love directs that competency. And he isn't just loving. He has the competence to do what needs to be done. And that's what they're seeing right in their hands. This completely unreasonable request, unfathomable. And they see it happening right through them. And so what they learn here, again, something that I'm convinced is important for our own discipleship to Jesus, they learn that lying behind the material world of podiums and microphones is non-bodily personal power, right? Like God is a person, but he doesn't have a body. So what lies behind the created world is this non-bodily personal power, or you might think of personal will, or you might think of personal purpose. This is what lies behind the bread and the fish. And it's this unseen reality that created the world, that actualizes it right this second, and that right this second is guiding it to its intended telos that it's actually guiding creation and human life to where God wanted it to go when he first said, let there be light. So then the last thing I wanna say, you know, just thinking of this journey inward, journey outward that we're all on, is that I think what God is doing in, to them in this passage and that what we're meant to get out of it is to just realize afresh this morning um, that God is trying to grow us to the point where we can exercise his power. That's actually the whole point of the human project. And that someday, Revelation 22.5, when we're ruling and reigning with him again in the new heavens and the new earth, this is what it's all about. It's learning to exercise his power. And this is why character and character development is more fundamental than power. Because what we're doing in our journey inward is we're trying to develop the kind of power that can bear up 
under the power to do good that, want, that God wants us to be able to employ for the sake of others. So back to what I said, what's the good you want to do in the world? Got it. How much power would it take to do that? Got it. How much character would it take to be able to have that power to do that good? And this is why you always hear me talking about a journey inward, character, virtue, transformation, for the sake of this journey outward, for the sake of others. And so what you see in the passage this morning, obviously, is this call to the silent practices. You know, come away with me. Let's go to a solitary private place. That these silent practices of the inner journey is a call to see what's most real in life. It was for them to get aside, see this invisible creator always at work in the person of Jesus, seeing how Jesus teaches and models this and how that inner journey is meant to move us out. Well, again, we didn't read this this morning, but if we'd have read the end of Mark 6, you would have seen that at the end of this chapter, Jesus comments on the 12's learning curve, you know, their own discipleship to him. And he comments on their lack of belief by saying they didn't understand about the loaves. Remember that passage? Jesus walks on the water to them. And when they kind of don't get what's happening there, his explanation for it is, oh, you still didn't understand that lesson about the loaves. You still don't really get what's going on here. And you still don't really see how believing that God has power over nature alerts us that we are never left alone to fight our own battles. You're never left alone to mere water molecules. They're real, they exist, they have properties that are important for them to have as water, but you're never left alone to mere water molecules. You're never left to mere bread or mere fish, but that lying behind that is a power that God wants us to have access to, not only for our own formation, but for the good of others. So we might say that the feeding of 5,000 kind of says something like this to us, that spirituality and ministry are made sane, they're made good for others, they're made endurable when we've learned to access the creative power of Jesus in the spirit that, is, that God means to mediate to us day in and day out.